Can you all hear me okay in the back? Okay, great. All right, before I pray and get started with the breakout, um, this, is, uh, this is not an easy session to teach at all. Uh, and I'll just say, I, I know for me personally, uh, thinking about the reality of hell and thinking about that, that there are people in this room uh, that have family members and close friends that are either currently in hell or headed towards hell. I mean, we all have folks that we know that have died without Christ, most likely. And so this is a, this is a heavy, heavy topic for me to teach. Um, although we're not apologetic for it. Uh, we're not apologetic about what the Bible says about it. We want to be biblical in the way that we think about it. And so I'd ask you guys to pray with me and, uh, and also just pray for me as, as, uh, as we look at this topic that I would uh, just be speaking from the scriptures and not opinion. And um, so let's, let's pray together. And we'll... Lord Jesus, I pray that you would speak now. God, I pray that you would speak through your scriptures. Lord, I pray that you would control my mouth, God, that, that what I say is from your spirit and from the scriptures, God, and nothing from myself. Lord, I pray that you would be with these guys as they listen, God. I pray that they would be able to, to hear with an open mind and even with a, a discerning and a, and a careful eye on the scriptures. Lord, uh, I just pray that you'd be glorified in this, God, that your nature and your character as a just and a loving God would be, would be glorified and lifted up while we study this. Um, in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right, so... In talking about hell, there are three things that I'd like to to discuss during this breakout session. Um, the first thing is, does hell exist? Can we can we prove from the scriptures that hell actually exists? And if so, the second thing is, what's it like? Is it a real place? Are there real flames? What is it really as terrible as people think? And then off of that, I'd like to talk about how is hell fair? How is hell just? How is it that someone can sin for 50 or 60 years and earn 50 or 60 trillion years of torment if that's what hell is really like? So we're going to jump right into this. And I, uh, the first quote I'd like to put up on the board, we turn off that middle light there, Brody. Um, the first quote I'd like to put up, this is uh, from C.S. Lewis. He wrote a book on the problem of evil, really it's called The Problem of Pain. And he wrote on this subject, but in his preface, he said, The only purpose of this book is to solve the intellectual problem raised by suffering. For the far higher task of teaching fortitude and patience, I was never fool enough to suppose myself qualified. And I echo that. This is a difficult session to teach. And so I'm not going to be talking about specifically how to work through the emotions of this, but really want to just look at what the scripture says. This next quote is from John MacArthur. And he says, This truth of eternal punishment to come on those who do not believe the gospel savingly is a painful message to preach. It's not only a painful message to preach, it's a painful message to hear. It's a painful message to process. It is a painful truth to apply, but it's biblical. So, does hell exist? From the scriptures, does hell exist? One reason that we're teaching this breakout session and one reason why we'll, we have to talk about does hell exist is because a lot of folks now are denying hell's existence. Uh, you know, Roman Catholics who have been so 
literal on their, their view on hell for so long. Uh, in, in a big way, the Roman Catholic position is softening towards hell. Now, obviously, we disagree with the Catholics on a lot of things, but um, the Pope just recently said, uh, hell is not a punishment imposed externally by God, but a condition resulting from attitudes and actions which people adopt in this life. He goes on to say, so eternal damnation is not God's work. It's actually our own doing. Uh, some folks who would call themselves evangelicals, like most of you guys, uh, some folks who would call themselves evangelical Christians are now denying it. This one guy, later on, I think tomorrow, uh, Rob Conti is going to teach a session called Love Wins on a book by this guy named Rob Bell. And one reason that book has stirred up so much controversy is because, uh, in large part, he's denying the existence of a, of a literal hell. And he'll go in great detail. So if you've read that book, you ought to go to that session. If not, it's pretty confusing. Um, but, um, you know, Rob Bell would, would put out this idea that it's all here on earth, that, that heaven and hell, we're experiencing it right now, that somehow it's here right now and somehow it's somewhere else in the future, that we're experiencing heaven or hell, and it's something that we create for ourselves. Um, so Roman Catholics are, are starting to soften on their position on it. Evangelicals are starting to deny it. But in truth, this is something that a lot of us have denied for a long time, both in the way that we live and in the way that we talk about it, when we share the gospel or when we preach, a lot of times we don't act as if there is a, a real hell. We don't preach or speak about a real hell. So I'd like to take a look at some of the terms used for hell to determine the first question, does hell exist? So some of the terms that are used for hell. This can be confusing. Uh, some of the terms used in the Old Testament to describe hell, uh, the main one is Sheol. Now, Sheol is used 65 times in the Old Testament, and it doesn't describe what we th think of as hell. It's really used in the sense of the grave or the dead or the, the place of the dead, the place where, where these, uh, these people slept uh, with their ancestors, with their fathers. And so this is, uh, it's used 65 times in the Old Testament, and you know, it's used in passages um, like when it talks about, uh, about the Messiah, the prophecy about the Messiah where it says, your Holy One will not see corruption in Sheol. Now, in the Old Testament, a lot of times when these guys are thinking of death and the grave, they're not thinking in the same way that we do. They don't have as developed an idea of the afterlife. So a lot of times when they're talking about being destroyed or going down to the grave, it's just meaning life and death. It just literally means death, okay? So that's one of the terms that's used um, that some people use for hell, uh, mainly the state of being dead or the grave. Now... The word Hades, some of you guys have heard that. It's used 11 times in the New Testament. It's a Greek word. And in one sense, it's used in the same way as the Old Testament word Sheol. Um, Sheol from the Old Testament is translated as Hades in Acts 2.31 in that, Messiah, in that uh, prophecy I was telling you about, the Psalm 16 prophecy that the soul of the Messiah would not be abandoned to, in the Old Testament, it's Sheol. In the New Testament, it's Hades. So in one sense... The word Hades can be thought of in the same way as Sheol, just the grave or the dead. Now, in this next slide, you'll see uh, in another sense, the idea of Hades includes torture. Uh, Luke 16, 23, sometimes used as the temporary abode of the unrighteous dead until the final judgment. Um, it's a place of anguish, tor torment, and fire. In 1 Corinthians 15, 55, it's used as death. Death, where is your victory? You've heard that verse. Hades, where is your victory? Matthew 16, 18. Uh, says the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of Hades here. Um, 
then at the bottom, I listed a lot of scripture references. I'm going to throw out a lot of scripture references on the screen that in a half hour breakout, we don't have the time to go through each one. But I encourage you guys to write them down. Write them down. Go back and do your homework on these terms. So Hades there. Another term that's used uh, for hell in the New Testament is Gehenna. Now, Gehenna is used 12 times in the New Testament. 11 of those times it's used by Jesus, which is crazy to think about. Now, this comes from a Hebrew word, and, and it does refer to an actual place, a real place. It's a valley. It's called the Valley of Hinnom. It's southwest of Jerusalem, and it was a place that um, was kind of like a garbage dump where these guys uh, would throw their garbage. There was always a fire burning, kind of burning the garbage. In Isaiah and in Daniel, uh, they used this, this imagery uh, kind of to, as a reference to eternal punishment. And the Christ kind of continues this imagery here, the imagery from the Valley of Hinnom. So this is a place where there's garbage continually burning. There's maggots continually eating the, eating the trash. And so Jesus uses and continues that imagery, began in the Old Testament, to describe hell. Now, this is a place where uh, y'all heard of people worshiping the god Molech in the Old Testament. They would sacrifice children in worship to Molech. And they would oftentimes take the bodies and throw them in the Valley of Hinnom. It's a terrible place. Um, a place of a burning where fire doesn't go out, where the worms continually eat. And that sort of imagery is used by Jesus when he's describing this. Uh, and that's, uh, that's to do with, with Gehenna. Um, now, will you go to the next one here? Some other terms used to describe... Uh, are used for hell are the second death used in Revelation four different times, the lake of fire, and we'll talk about what the difference is there, uh, used four different times in Revelation, and then Tartarus, which is used in Second Peter 2.4. It's used in the sense of where angels are cast and enchained in darkness until the judgment. Now, this is a, a unique word. It's only, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. And basically, it's a word for the Greek underworld. Like the, and it really means something like, the deepest or the pit. And basically like Peter took one, a word that these guys would have understood and kind of uh, redefined it, reapplied it and said basically just the darkest, the deepest pit, the darkest place. So these are some of the terms that are used for the existence of hell. So you see described in several different ways that hell does exist in some form. So then what is it like? If there is this place, this Gehenna, this Hades, what, what is it like? What are some images we can look at to think about that? So as we look at these images, I don't want to just have a purely academic feel to this because these images are, are terrible. I want you to write down the references for these images and go look them up for yourselves. Go, go read these verses for yourselves and try to read them in the context of what they're saying. Don't just pull the verses out, but read them in the context of what it's saying. But these, these images are, are terrible to think about. The first image that's used uh, when talking about hell is darkness, used in Matthew, 2 Peter, and Jude, a darkness. The second image that's used over and over and over is fire or a lake of fire. It's used in Matthew several times. It's used in Jude and Revelation and Luke 3. The third one is eternal. The third image is that it's eternal, is that it never stops. We're going to come back to this in a minute. But that one image of hell that is just prevalent, that's just over and over and over, is that hell is eternal. You can see this in Daniel 12, Matthew, uh, Matthew 18, Matthew 25, Mark 9, Jude 6 and 7, Revelation 10, 
2 Thessalonians 1, nine. You can see over and over and over that it talks about hell as being eternal. Uh, another one is unquenchable thirst. As we look at the parable in Luke 16 of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, you see it in Matthew and Luke as gnashing of teeth. This term is used, you know, there's one place where Jesus claims to be God in the New Testament. And the Pharisees are so angry, it says they plug their ears up and they're grinding their teeth together, yelling. And just, ah, they're just so intense and so angry that he would claim this and they run at him to stone him. Now, this is the same imagery that's used here. It's just this intensity, this gnashing, grinding of teeth. Um, Revelation 16, 7 through 9 is used by some to describe a place without repentance, possibly. Uh, there's differing views on that. That's why I put a question mark there. Uh, Daniel 12, 2 describes it as everlasting contempt. John 5, 2 Thessalonians and Jude describe it as punishment or judgment handed down by God. Revelation 14 describe it as restlessness. Luke 19, um, in Luke 19, hell is likened to slaughter through a parable. Uh, we flip to the next one. This one here is, is terrifying here. It's uh, Matthew 5 and then continuing Matthew 10, 18, and Mark 9 describe hell as worse than physical pain. It's terrifying. Worse than physical pain. The worst we can think of. It's worse than that. James 5 describes it as misery. And Revelation 14, 9 through 12, describe it as fury and the full wrath of God. I want to read that. If you, ha- if you guys have a Bible, let's go to Revelation 14. Revelation 14, verse 9. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or his hand... He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and of his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. That single verse is terrifying where it says, He also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. That's terrifying. Hebrews describes over and over, it is a terrible, a terrifying, a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Hebrews says over and over, let us therefore fear. That's what these images are here to produce. Uh, And continue on. Romans 2 and Colossians 3 describe it as the result of sin, and Luke 16 describes it as torment. So here you have all of these images put forth in the Scripture. Now, the question is, the question is not, are these images terrible? Because that is clear. Darkness, fire, gnashing of teeth, the full fury of the wrath of God. The question isn't, are they terrible? The question is, are they literal? How are we supposed to see this? Is this, is this real fire? Are, are people put in a place where there is real fire burning them, burning their souls somehow? Like, how, how are we to understand this language? Because at sometimes, um, sometimes you do have some images that conflict, right? Sometimes you have darkness and fire. How does that work out? Because if, you know, fire gives off light, how can there be darkness and fire at the same time? Now, you can say it, would be, it was literal in a way that it's a, it's a sort of fire that we have no clue what it's like, that, it's, that we haven't seen that sort before. 
Uh, let me put up a couple quotes up here. This first one's from John Calvin, and he says, By such expressions, the Holy Spirit certainly intended to confound all of our senses with dread. That's the imagery we're supposed to have. That's the idea we're supposed to have from this imagery, that, that the Holy Spirit's confounding all of our senses with dread. The second quote's from J.I. Packer. He says, Do not try to imagine what it's like to be in hell. The mistake is to take such pictures as physical descriptions when, in fact, they're imagery symbolizing realities worse than the symbols themselves. You see that? Symbolizing realities worse than the symbols themselves. That is terrifying. But think about this. In the way that we describe heaven, how do you hear it described? Streets of gold. Uh, walls made of sapphires and rubies and precious stones. Do you think heaven is really gold and jewels? Yeah, maybe so. If it is, it's awesome. If it's not literally, if he's not literally describing streets of gold, then it's probably way better, right? It's probably even richer. And that's the richest thing that these authors could think of when they saw it. That's like gold. That's like sapphires. That's like rubies. So if it's not that literally, then it's probably better than we can think of it. But the terrifying flip side is, if this isn't literal flames, it's probably worse. It's probably more terrifying. Because what you're dealing with here is the full fury of the wrath of God. Even Matthew 26, 24 implies, through Judas' story, that it's better to never be born than to be in hell. Better to never be born. So whether these images are literal, it's terrible. If they're allegorical, if they're figurative, it's worse, which is just terrifying. So just suffice it to say that we can't comprehend the bliss of heaven, the greatness of heaven, or the terrors of hell. We can't. Uh, all we can do is come up with, with these realities, that if, the, if they're literal, heaven is fantastic, hell is horrifying. If they're allegorical, heaven is even better than better than anyone can describe or imagine. And hell is worse than these images that are terrifying in and of themselves. So three things we can confidently say about hell, though. Hell is eternal, hell is conscious, and hell is punishment. We see these from the images, that these images depict the worst environment possible. The first thing I want to look at is eternal. This is where a lot of folks will deviate in their teachings on hell. Where they'll say, sure, hell is terrible, but it's not forever. It's not forever. Because the word that's used for eternal or everlasting here is ionios. Which a lot of folks will say, that doesn't mean forever. It can mean forever, but it also means a really long time. It's based on the context here. Um, I want to read this quote here from, uh, from John MacArthur on that word for eternal. He says, punishment in hell is defined by the word ionios, which is the word e- eternal or everlasting. There are people who would like to redefine that word ionios and say, well, it doesn't really mean forever. But if you do that with hell, you've just done it with heaven because the same word is used to describe both. If there's not an everlasting hell, then there's not an everlasting heaven. And I'll go one beyond that. The same word is used to describe God. And so if there's not an everlasting hell, then there's not an everlasting heaven, nor is there an everlasting God. It's clear that God is eternal, and therefore that heaven is eternal, and so is hell. You guys see that? The same word is used to describe hell as it is heaven. So most folks will argue 
hell, because of this word that's used for eternal, it's, it's not really eternal. It just lasts for a while, and they were all ushered into heaven. Whoops. Well, the same words used to describe heaven. So if you believe that about hell, you believe that about heaven. Whoops. The same words used to describe God. So if you believe that about hell, you have to believe the same about God. It's all based on the context here. So in one sense, the context for this word Ionios in reference to hell is the nature of God himself. Now, in another sense, you can look at other verses to see about, about the eternal nature of hell. If you look, and I encourage you guys to look it up real quick. Keep your finger in Revelation um, and then go over to Matthew. Matthew 25. Matthew 25, starting in verse 41. This is the end of the parable of the sheep and the goats. He's finishing up this. And he says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Keep that in mind. The eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you didn't welcome me. Naked and you didn't clothe me. Sick and in prison you didn't visit me. Then they'll answer saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and didn't minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. All right. That same word used here, the same context, eternal punishment versus eternal life. But look at the, at the qualifying verse up there in, in uh, verse 41, where he says, into the depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So there's the context. So what is that like? What is the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels? Does that end? Is there an ending to that? If you flip over to Revelation 20, verse 10, you don't have to, I'll read it for you. It says this, And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. These images for eternal are all throughout the, Old, the New Testament. All throughout it. All those verses that I showed you earlier. That it's saying this same hell for those who don't savingly believe in Christ. Uh, this same hell is the same one that, that the devil and the angels. Like that, that one that's reserved for the devil and his angels. And that fire is eternal. Day and night. Day and night forever and ever, day and night, ongoing. And there's no way to get around that as far as the, the context here in the Word. Now, this rules out two things. Because what a lot of folks will, will, will want to say is, uh, is an idea of universalism. Y'all may not know what that is, but universalism is the idea that everyone eventually makes it into heaven. Now, some strands of this will say, you know, there really isn't a hell, and everybody just makes it in because God loves everybody. And another strand will say, well, there is a hell, but it's just kind of a speed bump on your way to heaven. Because God's grace is so good, and love is so great that in the end it wins, and it wins everyone over. Now, is that what's being taught in these verses? Is that the language that's being used in these verses? That this is a speed bump that eventually everyone gets out of? It's talking about the full fury of the wrath of God's anger poured out eternally in the same way as God's nature, never ending forever and ever. So you can't claim universalism on these verses, although in one sense, in one sense you would like to, right? Because 
I, I know for me, I, I don't like the idea, and I think that's human, and in one sense reflects the glory of God, like that I don't like to think about people in hell for eternity. Eternity. No one should rejoice in that, right? In that sense. And so in one sense, I think, I want to be careful how I say this. In one sense, part of me wants to say, I want everyone to eventually make it into heaven. But I've got to be careful when I say that. Because in a sense, thinking like that elevates my reasoning over God's reasoning. And saying, I wouldn't do it that way. Does that make sense? And saying, I, I know God is going to do it that way, but I, I wouldn't do it that way. I would choose a different, a better path than God. And that's that's dangerous way of thinking. We'll talk about this some more in just a second when we get to the is hell fair issue. The second thing that this that these verses rule out is annihil, excuse me, annihilism, where where folks believe that folks are sent to hell, but it's not forever. They just go and they're done. God just annihilates them right there. Now, a lot of folks, you know, John Stott believes this, and the reason he bases this is from that verse I read to you earlier about the smoke rising eternally, and he bases this on well. You know, like if something's destroyed, the fire eventually goes out once it's burned all the stuff that it has to burn. Is that reasoning from the scriptures? No, that's reasoning from an image, right? The image of fire here that may or may not be taken. Literally, he's saying, well, fire goes out, so the punishment must go out too. Uh, Not necessarily. Uh, And so annihilationism a lot of times draws from the language of Sheol in the Old Testament, where it says that his soul was... or he was destroyed, or his soul was destroyed in Sheol, that it was destroyed. They take that as a, as a finality. Well, a lot of times, remember, these guys aren't thinking in, in terms of eternity. They're thinking in terms of life or death, that he was destroyed. Like in the Numbers 14, the rebellion at Korah, and it says uh, Korah was destroyed in the grave. But then it goes on to say he and his family and all their belongings so do we really think that all of Korah's lamps and rugs and food were destroyed in hell forever? Or, I mean, done, done away with? No, it just means that the ground opened up and that they were destroyed. They went to the grave in that sense. They're not talking about eternal life. Does that make sense? Okay, so rules out universalism and annihilationism. So that's, that's the first thing, that, it, that uh, hell is eternal, conscious, and punishment. That's, that's eternal. The second thing is that hell is conscious. Some folks will believe, yeah, hell does exist. It does go on eternally, but we don't really know that we're there. It is a separation from God, but in reality, we're kind of sedated almost. It's a strange view. And a lot of these views you'll find are not based on the scriptures. They're based on our own sentiment. They're based on our own feelings that we want to feel that there's an out. And so, But you see, even from parables, and it is a parable, but even from the parable in Luke 16, that the rich man that's described as as being tormented there, he knows he's being tormented. He's not sedated. He knows. He said, send somebody to talk to my family so they don't have to come here where the flames are. The third thing is that it's punishment, that it's retribution, not restoration. All right. A lot of folks, I mean, just read the Old Testament and you'll understand that God punishes the wicked. But a lot of folks, uh, and, and Rob Bell will say this in his book, but will say that hell is not the wrath of God, but it's the correctional love of a father. No, there's a big difference here. Uh, I'm a daddy. I've got three kids and they're awesome. Uh, my oldest, I got two girls and then a boy. 
Um, my oldest girl is three, so we had them really close together. Um, but my oldest girl is three, and she's kind of out of that. You know, they say the kids go into the terrible twos, and she's kind of out of that. But my middle girl is, I mean, in the midst of it. She is the most rebellious, and she's, but she's so cute. You know, but she's so rebellious, but it's in stupid stuff. She's just trying to test us. She just wants to see if we'll, if we'll actually punish her for doing wrong. And so a few weeks ago, her big thing was getting out of bed. And we would say, we go up to her name's Knox. And we'd say, Knox, don't get out of bed. You understand? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Yes, sir. I'm, I'm a boy. Yes, sir. Okay. All right. So don't get out of bed. Just stay in bed. And I will see you in the morning. Yes, ma'am. Okay. And so, <laughs> so we'd go in the living room, and me and Amy, we'd have a seat on the couch and just wait. And all of a sudden, you'd hear her hop out of bed and these little bare feet smacking on the wood floor. And she'd come around the corner. And for a while, she'd just come around the corner and look at you with her mouth open. And you go, Knox. And that's all you have to say. And she'd go, she knew it was coming because we believe it's biblical to spank her kids. So she knew she was going to get a spanking. And so then after a while, she changed tactics and decided, I'm going to try to make them think it's morning. So well, I'd say, Knox, don't get out of bed. Yes, ma'am. Okay. All right. So we go, go to the living room, have a seat, and you'd hear, and she'd come around the corner with her like little puppy and say, morning, daddy. And I'd say, Knox. And she'd go, she knew it was coming. And so that's kind of, that's kind of been curbed now. So her new rebellion is to take off all of her clothes. So she'll get in bed and she's like, all right, I can't get out of bed. I'm going to take all these clothes off. And so she'll get in there. She'll take every bit of clothing off and be butt naked in the bed. And of course you come in in the morning and she's wet the bed all over the place. And so one night we're in the house and, uh, <laughs> and we say, all right, Knox, don't get out of bed and don't take up. The list gets longer of the don'ts at night. Don't get out of bed. Don't mess with the window. Don't take off your clothes. Yes, ma'am. All right. Go back to the couch. Have a seat. And then we didn't hear anything. And we're like, oh, good. This is good. And then my older kid goes, Daddy! Knox and naked in my bed! And they come in there. And Knox is sitting there, I mean, like, just deer in the headlights, butt naked up in Alani's bed. And I say, and... I, of course, time out for a minute. I go back outside and laugh in the hallway. And I, okay, I need another second. And then I finally, when I come back in, I'm like, Knox. You know, and she breaks down. She's so, I mean, she's so emotional, I guess. She's so respons- responsive. Like, even if when she was smaller, if she was reaching for the heater or the, the wood-burning stove, something like that, I'd just barely tap her hand like that. Now, if I'm correcting Knox, I'm not like, hoo, 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 pow. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not out to hurt her. Like, I don't see her coming down the hallway and be like, here it comes. Bah. You know, I'm, I'm really, I'm not interested in like just destroying this girl. I'm not in, because I'm her daddy and I love her. And so I, my goal is correction. I want her to obey me and to submit her will to me so that in the future she'll obey Christ and submit her will to Christ. And that's my job as a daddy, to teach her how to do that. That's the correctional love of the father. So when I'm correcting, I use the minimum I have to. I don't want to hurt this girl, but I mean just a little bit. And that little soft heart, now my older one, she's like, 
you know, with Knox, I can just be like, Knox. And she'll, with Alani, I'll be like, Alani. And she'll, so just stand there. Alani, I'm going I'm to give you a spanking. And sometimes after I give her a spanking, she goes, whew, I did good. <laughs> yeah, you did do good. Good job. No. You know, I, so, I mean, like, but with Knox, she's so soft. And so it, it really doesn't take much to correct her. And that's, that's the correctional love of the Father. Is that what we see in Revelation 14 when he says, the full fury of the cup of God's wrath poured out? Is that the correctional love of the Father? From any of these verses, no. From any of these verses, no. There's no correctional attribute to it. In fact, read the warnings in Hebrews that are terrifying about, you know, if, if those that disobeyed the angels that came, if those that disobeyed them received the terrible punishment, how much more those who have disobeyed the Son, and then they go on to say, and have trampled Him underfoot. How much more severely will they be punished? That's not the correctional love. And so then how is that fair? How is that just? And a lot of times when you hear that question worded, you'll hear it like this. Uh, Rob Bell words it like this. How does God punish people for thousands of years with infinite eternal torment for things they did in just a few finite years of life? Bart Ehrman, who's a... uh, a professor at UNC Chapel Hill, he says this, and he's kind of sarcastic at the first. He says, the lake of fire is stoked up and ready for everyone who's opposed to God. This will involve eternal burnish, burning and everlasting punishment, even for those who have sinned against God intermittently, say, for 20 years. 20 trillion years of torment in exchange for 20 years of wrong living. And that's only the beginning. Is this really worthy of God? That's one of the questions I really had to wrestle with when I first came to the Lord. But let me say this, just as a, as a preface to this question. Deuteronomy 29, 29 stresses that we will not understand everything. You won't. Name me one thing you understand fully. I don't understand this shirt I'm wearing. My wife designed it. I don't even understand how that worked. But, like, if you get down to the nitty-gritty here, like with the molecules and how, I mean, you know, they say in a gas, all the molecules are running all around and then in a solid, they're just shaking. I I have no clue how that works. Name one thing that you fully, every aspect understand. You don't. There's, but I'm okay with it, right? I'm still wearing a shirt. I'm still driving a truck. I don't know how that works. But when, when it comes to the deepest parts of the reasoning and the justice and the love and how that fits together in the mind of a holy and omnipotent God, we say, I don't understand that. I'm done. God must be unfair. That's a dangerous line of thinking because it elevates our reasoning, which can create nothing and really fully understand nothing. It elevates that sorry reasoning, that sinful reasoning over God's. We put that first quote up. Yeah. David Kingdon said, Sin against the Creator is heinous to a degree utterly beyond our sin-warped imagination's ability to conceive of. Who would have the boldness to suggest to God what the punishment should be? It's, it's heinous to a degree utterly beyond our sin-warped imagination. So our imaginations and our thoughts are affected by sin. And then from that platform, we try to say and dictate to God who is without sin and is not been affected or warped by sin, sinful reasoning, we try to dictate to him what's fair and what's not. The second thing I would issue, other than um, 
other than the fact that we, we're not going to understand everything, is that our problems with this doctrine are not textual, they're philosophical. The Bible's clear in what it teaches. Now, there are some confusing parts, but the Bible's pretty clear in what it teaches. It's just the, the, our thoughts behind it, our reasoning, like uh, for us to, to get okay with it in our emotions. And I, and I would say, to a sense, you'll not get okay with it fully. But let me say this about how is it just? How is it fair? Does the punishment ever really fit the crime? Because that's the issue here. They'll say the punishment doesn't really ever doesn't really fit the crime, but does it ever? Think about our system of punishment. Let's say, and we talked about this a couple summers ago. Let's say that someone did the worst imaginable act that I can think of. It's let's say someone raped and killed a child. Let's say it took them ten minutes to do so. Do we punish that person for ten minutes? No. Why not? The punishment doesn't fit the crime in that. You know what I'm saying? Because that act was so terrible. Now, let me, let me use this illustration. This is an illustration that one of our friends here, he used to work here, his name's Adam Vincent, that he, he introduced me to. And I think it helps explain it a lot. As, as you're thinking about hell and punishment, let's say this. Let's say you went out on a playground and little Johnny had a grasshopper. And Johnny took this grasshopper and he pulled the legs off of this grasshopper and he put it in an ant bed. And he just watched. And these ants are just killing this grasshopper, just eating it. If we walked up on Johnny doing that, what would we say to Johnny? Johnny, you're sick. Stop. Right? Would Johnny go to jail? No. Why not? It's a grasshopper. Now, let's say Johnny did the same thing to a puppy. Let's say Johnny took a puppy, tore the legs off of the puppy, and put it in an ant bed. Now, why is that a bigger deal in our minds? Would Johnny go to jail? If he's old enough, yeah. I'd think about Michael Vick. He just had dogs fighting. Like, take it one step further. Let's say someone took a baby, took the legs off of the baby and put it in the anthill. Would that person be punished? Absolutely. To the fullest extent of the law. Why? It's the same action. Pulling the legs off of something, put it in an ant bed. For one, we say stop. For another, we put them in an electric chair. Why? Because the object that's wronged is of greater value. Does that make sense? When we, we don't understand the weight of sin. So, of course, we can't understand the weight of the punishment that, that sin earns. Does that make sense? That we don't, we don't understand how weighty sin is, and partially because we don't understand how holy God is. If you think of this, you think of Isaiah in chapter 6. You remember that, that passage where it's like, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, and he's seated on his throne, and the train of his robe fills the temple. You remember that? The vision that Isaiah has of the Lord. And he sees God in his throne room, and he sees the holy angels that are covering their face and covering their feet, and they're flying, and they're saying to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what's Isaiah's response? He falls flat on his face, doesn't he? And he starts saying, I'm undone. That's it. I'm unraveled. I'm undone. I'm unholy. I'm unclean. I'm undone. Because he, fi- he sees how the holiness of God, and then he sees the sinfulness of himself and realizes, whoa. Now, he's not walked around like this, like he, but once he finally sees it, as, as sees God as he truly is, he sees himself as he truly is. Because I think that, like, David Platt brought, up, brought this up at one point. He said, you know, that Isaiah realizes on the ground there that, that 
I mean, think about the weight of sin, that one sin condemned all of the human race to condemnation, right? One sin condemned all the human race. Eating fruit condemned all the human race. All throughout the scriptures, you have one sin. That guy, Uzzah, remember, as they're taking the ark in that ox cart, and Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady it, struck dead. One sin. Ananias and Sapphire, we talked about uh, early this morning with the staff, that these guys tell one lie. Struck dead. They're in number 16, you have a guy picking up sticks on the Sabbath with a high hand. He's doing it just like, ha ha, I'm going to pick up sticks. Dead. And Isaiah sees this on the ground, realizes that one sin committed all the human race, uh, condemned all the human race, and realizes that he himself has committed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sins. And he's just like, I'm undone, I'm undone. And then what happens in the story? An angel takes, a, takes the tongs and takes an ember off of the altar and touches his lips and says, clean, not guilty. How is that fair? I mean, this guy has earned it. He's deserved it. He sees how sinful he is. Really, the scandal of hell, in my mind, is not that some people go there, but that God chooses to not send some people there. Does that make sense? That we all deserve it because of the weight of our sin. But what people talk about is the problem of evil and the problem of hell, but never the problem of the good. The problem that how does God look at this man's sin and claim not guilty? And I'll say this. It's not because he just lets him off the hook. It's not. That sin is unpunished. It's not just because he lets him off the hook. Like, you know, on May 23rd, California, uh, they released 30 to 46,000, the Supreme Court ruled to release 30 to 46,000 inmates because of overcrowding. Now, these guys hadn't served their time. It was just too crowded in the jails. These guys just got to walk. They still needed to to pay their punishment, but they just walked on a technicality. That's not the same with us. We don't just walk on a technicality. Jesus bore the full fury of the cup of God's wrath. Remember, he's in the garden praying, Lord, let this cup pass from me. The cup of God's wrath is poured out on Jesus so that if you repent from your sins and you turn and follow Christ as you're following the calling of the Holy Spirit, then Jesus takes your sin and you take his cleanness. You take his righteousness. That is crazy. That's the real scandal in this whole picture. That's, that's overwhelming to think about, is that God could call you not guilty. And so Hebrews just warns over and over, and he says, Therefore, as long as it's called today, don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. Meaning, it's not done yet. You guys are still living. It's still called today. So if, you, if you're not a Christian in here, you need to repent from your sins. You need to follow Christ. If you are a Christian in here, we need to take seriously the, the weight of the doctrine of, of hell. You know, uh, let me say a few things here. Just that sin is so grievous an offense against God that one sin condemned all of the human race. But love is so great and gracious that one act and one life purchase ransom for all of the human race. In hell, we see God's justice and love, God's justice towards those who are there, and God's love towards those who are not. So... For those of you that are non-believers, I, I beg you to repent from your sins because it seems from the scriptures that hell really does exist, that it really is terrible, that it really is eternal. But also we see from the scriptures that while we were yet sinners, 
that Christ died for us. And that's, that's just blows your mind. And the doctrine of hell should do just that. It should point you towards the greatness of Christ towards God's crazy plan to send himself, to send his son to earth, to, to pay for our sins so that we wouldn't have to. That's crazy. So one thing I think the doctrine of hell should do for you guys that are believers, um, obviously for non-believers, it should push you to repent or to reject God. And the, the, for you that are believers, it should push you to magnify God, that God should seem bigger and more loving by studying the doctrine of hell. The second thing it should motivate you to do is to share the gospel. Because you do have family members that are non-believers. And they're not beyond the reach of God's love. It's still called today. The Holy Spirit still saves people. It's still being done. Don't be surprised by that. So let me read you this one stat and then I'm going to close it out. You guys know how many people die in a year? I didn't know. I did a little research. Um, The Census Bureau says that in every year that there are 55,503,922 deaths, 55 million. So that boils down to every month in the world, there are 4,625,327 people that die every month. 4.6 million people die a month. That's a population of Alabama, roughly. So every month, the population of Alabama leaves the planet. That boils down to every day, um, 151,650 deaths every day. That means every hour, so I've been speaking about 45 minutes, every hour there are 6,319 deaths. That boils down to every minute there are 105 deaths. Every second there are just under two people that die a second, 1.8. That's crazy to think about. It's crazy to think about that that many people are just... Uh, that stat just makes my stomach hurt at just how many people are just pouring into eternity, 105 this minute, 105 the next minute. And so we have an obligation because the overwhelming majority of those people aren't true followers of Christ because the way is narrow and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And in light of the doctrine of hell and its reality and in light of the reality and doctrine of the atonement of Christ, you guys need to be sharing the gospel. You need to be sharing the gospel boldly. Um, This is a big topic. I'd like to recommend a book that I think is biblical on this topic. It's uh, it's called Hell on Trial, The Case for Eternal Punishment. Hell on Trial. It's by a guy named Robert Peterson. Hell on Trial, The Case for Eternal Punishment by Robert Peterson. If you look that up, it's like, $4 used on Amazon. I think he does a really good job going through the passages uh, objectively, but then teaching what he believes that the, uh, he kind of presents each piece objectively and then presents really what what the scripture seems to be saying. And uh, I I thought it was a really biblical treatment of it. Now, also, I know that some of you guys probably have some some very real questions about hell. Um, And I I don't have an off-campus today, so I'd love to just sit here and talk with you about it. well, let me, let me pray for us, and I'm going to let those of you go who need to go and get ready for stuff. And if anybody wants to ask questions, stick around, and we'll talk for a while. Uh, so let's pray.